Hi, and welcome to Top in Tech. My name is Colin Darcy. I'm your regular podcast host, and I'm a senior practice director at Global Council. This is the latest episode in our In Conversation series with the leading thinkers and thought leaders in the tech sector. And I'm delighted today that Roger Taylor is joining me. He is one of the leading experts in Europe on how governments should think about deploying data and AI. Roger is a former chair of the UK government's Centre for Data Ethics and Innovation. This is the government body responsible for enabling the trustworthy use of data and AI within the UK. Roger is also the former chair of the regulator Ofqual. This is the regulator in England responsible for overseeing the examinations processes in British schools. Roger is currently part of the Accenture Luminary Programme of External Expert Advisors, but he's also worked across the public and private sector over the last couple of decades, including founding Dr. Foster, which is now part of Telstra Health. So Roger, I'd like to use today's discussion to focus on governments and how they use and how they interact with algorithms. Firstly, how directly they use them for government policymaking. Secondly, the concerns they might have about how they are deployed within the private sector. And thirdly, following on from that, how the government may look to regulate their use in the future. So I'd like to start with that first point, which is how governments themselves use algorithms as a tool of policymaking, and in particular, a tool of direct policymaking. And you, of course, have had clear experience here from your time as chair of Ofqual during the exam awards period during 2020. And just very quickly, to explain to those non-UK listeners, Ofqual is the is the regulator which oversees uh, examinations in England as part of uh, the United Kingdom. Um, and during uh, 2020, like many other parts of the world, the exams, uh, which are known as GCSEs and A-levels in the UK, were cancelled because of the COVID-19 pandemic. As part of this, Ofqual were given responsibility for devising a system for awarding grades and using an algorithm to do so to determine what those grades should be for children. However, during August 2020, this, this unraveled amidst a series of complaints from parents, children and teachers, and ultimately the algorithm was scrapped and replaced by an alternative system based on uh, teacher assessments and uh, predicted grades. So. Roger, you were at the centre of this, which is possibly, at least in the UK, the most famous example of the use of algorithms in direct policymaking. So could you give us a little bit more context to what, what happened then? But most importantly, I'd like to get from you your reflections on the conclusions from this episode that you've taken for how algorithms should be used in direct government policymaking. I think there's a great deal we can learn from this particular incident. Certainly, as you say, it's certainly the most high-profile attempt by government to use an algorithm to allocate stuff to people, in this case, grades and university places, that so spectacularly failed. I think the first thing to think about is just the, the way we thought about the problem and the, the failure to recognise... Uh, we, we were very focused on the question of distributional fairness, where we giving grades fairly to all sorts of different groups of people because there was a, a, a significant threat and we I mean we almost certainly if the argument had been used we would have ended up in court having to justify it so we put a lot of effort into that but the bit that got lost in that whole conversation was just the basic issue of legitimacy and 
we had said very clearly, look, we're just kind of give, guessing what grade, we're going to give, make the best guess we can on the data we've got as to what your grade would be. So, and inevitably, a lot of people will give, be given a grade low and they would have gotten an exam. It, within government, well, the, the view was, well, look, there's a pandemic on, what can you do? I mean, this is just the best we can do. But to somebody who's, whose whole future has just been taken away from them on the basis of an estimate of what might have happened if they had been given the chance to take the exam that they had worked for all their life, you know, much of their life had been spent trying to get to this point. It was obviously an illegitimate thing to do. And the failure to grasp that illegitimacy is something that quite a striking aspect of this. There are many other things we could we could pull out here. I mean, I, I think particularly another issue to it is is the way the problem was framed, you know, the, the, the way that it was decided that the problem really was that children weren't going to have taken exams, but they did need to go to university. And the decision, as it were, to try and pretend we could replicate that with an algorithm, that these things we were calling A-levels, they obviously weren't A-levels, they were, you know, they were a guess, basically. But to do it centrally, I mean, was, again, an odd choice. I mean, another way of coming at the same problem would have been to simply say to universities, we know we can give you some information here we can give you some estimates of what might happen but it's over to you to decide who you want to take but because we did it you know we did it through a central system in the end the only way to make it fair was to massively give people the benefit of the doubt increase university places by what it was 10 to 15 percent and give lots of people much higher grades than they would have gotten an exam because it's unfair as it were to 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 say we think you're the person who most likely wouldn't have gotten it when you we don't really have a very good basis for, for saying that so there's all that there's that kind of way of thinking about the problem and, and the way that that played out and, and i think there's a lot to learn from that and how we think about these issues in terms of legitimacy but the the other aspect that is perhaps also worth pointing out is the politics of it in particular the, the situation in which political decisions were made as to what people should tolerate or be expected to tolerate there was not a very clear understanding of the political decisions that were being made by politicians if you mean i don't think they really grasped what it was they were asking people to do this is why ofcall recommended not doing this we said look honestly this is an incredibly hard thing to make people accept and the political decision to go ahead with it i think is illustrates the lack of clarity amongst political decision makers as to how these things actually work and what they what they what they can do and what they can't do if we were to conclude there in many ways it wasn't the algorithm itself necessarily that was the problem here but it was the task that the algorithm was given and the political expectations being out of kilter with those of the public. This does, though, raise a broader alarm bell when you think about the use of algorithms in other areas of policymaking. When you think, for instance, how it could be used, say, in welfare systems or uh, other areas where certain decisions or certain assumptions are made on the basis of data rather than individual assessment and individual decision making. So do you think there are other areas where the deployment of algorithms in this direct policymaking sense does actually potentially work and where there would be chance of greater legitimacy. Yes, I do. I think there's a huge scope for this. In terms of how we get from where we are now to, to that place, a few thoughts that, that might help us. One of which is that uh, the there tends to be, you know, as I say, there, there tends to be too little focus on legitimacy. So the idea that, for example, you can decide on, you know, algorithms for deciding whether it's a good idea to let someone out on bail, yeah, do have a pretty good rate of accuracy. But that, that's a quite a different question from whether, in fact, if people just say, look, at the end of the day, I want to be able to stand in front of a judge and make my plea. And I think that's the only fair way to do it. The fact that it might actually result in people being let out who should not be on bail 
it's not it's not it's not there's nothing illegal or unethical or wrong about a society that chooses it wants to do that so the, the first thing to say is just because a system is accurate and you can show it's it's fairer than say systems are right now you could you could show such a system might be more accurate and it might be fairer that does not mean it's the right thing to do if people are not willing to accept it so that's that's one thing to say but i think a second perhaps more important point is is one of the reasons people are uncomfortable with this stuff is because they don't have very good experiences with it and off-ball is a pretty obvious example of this. And so another way of thinking about the same problem is, is, is to ask the question why it is we government has a habit of always deploying algorithms to take stuff away from people. If you look in the benefit system, for example, we, we tend to think of algorithms first and foremost, as, as many banks have, to identify where we think there might be people who are committing fraud and to get money back. And that's a totally reasonable thing to try and do. It's looking after public money. Nothing wrong with that. But we aren't spending much less time, you know, using algorithms to try and identify people who might have overpaid their tax and given their money back. Yeah. Or people who might have missed opportunities to actually pay, you know, be, do organize things in a more tax efficient way. And we're not thinking about how can we use all the data that's in the inland revenue system and the treasury to try and help people make smarter choices in that way. Another way of thinking about the same problem is that taking lots of data and putting people into categories. And you can do that to decide whether people are eligible for um, a particular benefit or whether they have a particular diagnosis and therefore should be treated. Those are good uses. But there's, there's another type of use, which is about matching. It's, a, it's you know, the, the use that you see on Amazon for finding the right product or on, on dating apps. And again, government could be doing a lot of this. Government could be using apps, for example, there's a find a job service that the, that the DWP, the Department for Work and Pensions operate in the UK, many other labor ministries and employment ministries around the world operate similar types of arrangements. This is a classic area where using AI to identify here is somebody who could probably benefit from this training course or could be helped uh, with a grant to go and study this and then they might be able to get a job over here or you know, here's somebody who's been in this job for 10 years, but they don't perhaps understand there's another opportunity that we could show them. This, that's, an, that's a use of AI that would help government achieve its objectives. And it's, it's not likely to cause deep resentment because it's just trying to help somebody find something that they don't have in front of them. But even just the information systems. I mean, if you, I don't know if you've ever tried to find information on the UK government's website or it's, it's a pretty hellish experience. And on the whole, you tend to find working through Google is, is a lot more effective than trying to work through the government's own systems of preventing information, presenting information. So just helping people find what they need to know. The, these are use cases where we put a much less effort in than use cases where we're basically saying, how can we use these to take stuff away from people? And if that's all you do with algorithms, and the, and the reason why people love Facebook and Amazon is because they help them get what they want. Government seems to be, and it's by its nature, government obviously is most of the time, there to tell people what they can't have but still there's a lot we could do with algorithms that people would say thank you for rather than why did you do that to me and so just on that 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 point about legitimacy legitimacy there roger are you saying that when i know the uk government at the moment has its ai strategy underway uh, the eu has its ai act going through the legislative process are you saying that those legal frameworks have not dwelt enough on this idea of legitimacy, both for public and private sector uses, and that as the government, at least in the UK, where there's still a little bit more time before uh, the government takes a final decision on how it wants to see the regulatory framework, that legitimacy should be given as prominent a position in those ethical frameworks as, say, anti-discrimination or other elements that are pretty well baked into them so far? I think the legitimacy issue is really is one primarily for, 
for government, very similarly related to some issues you might say in areas which are uh, such as healthcare, where there's a lot of public provision, uh, education, I think has some similar issues. I think HR and hu human resources, uh, who you employ, who, who you promote, how you rate your employees has, has some of those characteristics as well. Uh, so I do think it's, it's it, but it is primarily an area for, 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 for government to think about. And it ties back to this issue of, of trust. And in a way, you know, mistrust of Amazon is, is less of a problem because people, on the whole, people feel quite reasonably on the whole, they can tell whether or not they're getting a decent service and they feel pretty good about it. There might be some price discrimination going on. People worry about it. It's hard to see, you know, Amazon are very clear that it doesn't happen, but it's not, on the whole, people can trust, feel they can trust Amazon or they have a sufficient trust to feel comfortable about what's going on. I think it's an area where people where there's significant decisions being made about people and they do not feel they can trust it, that just does become a major problem. And in some of those areas, the, the sorts of plans that are being put forward by the EU regulation will address that and help to establish trust. But there are other areas, particularly those involving government, um, areas like criminal justice, areas like tax and benefit systems, where I think we need to think more deeply about the problem. Okay, thanks. We'll jump on to some of those private sector implications, like particularly the point about employment in a second. I just wanted to touch in a slightly parochial manner just on, on the UK for, for two moments. Um, the first half of 2020, when we look back now, in some sense, was a bit of a high, high point for data-led decision-making. We had Dominic Cummings, who's obviously a very controversial figure, but he was someone who did focus the apparatus, at least in and around number 10, on data-led decision-making was given the opportunity to do so by, by the pandemic, where we saw a greater push for sharing of corporate tech platform data, telecoms data with the government for pandemic management purposes, but also between government departments where there's lots of issues around sharing between, say, the healthcare sector, but other parts of government, say, the Home Office or, or elsewhere. There's a slight sense that that momentum has sapped. I mean, Cummings has gone. A lot of the people who worked with him have gone. The pandemic is not over, but it's, it's over as far as the government is concerned. And there's that slight sense backed up by infamous examples like we've talked about with Ofqual, but also issues like the sub-postmasters um, and what's happened there with a lot of uh, unlawful and unfair uh, convictions. There's this sense that that high watermark has sort of retreated and we're sort of going back into practices that happened pre-pandemic. A lot of the progress we saw during that period has has dissipated. Given you were sort of in and around government for, what, at least a year and a half during the pandemic, do you, do you think that's a fair characterization? I think it's a very fair characterization. And I think it's a deeply worrying thing, as it were, that's happening right now. And I would point to, you know, at first I'd point to the, some of the stuff that went on in the pandemic was superb. So some of the stuff around using data to build data stores to manage the pandemic was really well done. Uh, most of it was sort of behind the scenes. The moment it came into contact with the public, for example, the attempt to create a, a an app, uh, and this was this was a, a problem that was Europe-wide, the a contacts tracing app um, ran into the problem that, to, you know, to try and make this as effective as possible, you would need to have some kind of centralised uh, uh, repository of data in order to sort of set the, the, the levels at the one ones that were accurately identifying people who needed to isolate or at least more accurately. 
And it ran into this problem that so many of these things run into, which is just lack of public trust. This sense of, and again, it's, it's, it's this issue of legitimacy or trust. They're, they're very close issues. And uh, we had a situation in which the government was trying to use um, uh, Apple and Google phones to do this. And both Apple and Google themselves said, we don't think you trust your government to use this data safely to protect you from a pandemic. And in the end, the, 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 the you know, an app was launched. It didn't work terribly well. It was, you know, not completely hopeless, but it did. I suppose the key thing to say about that, there was so much hope at the beginning that this would provide help. And in terms of the decision-making there, there was a sort of a, an exaggerated idea of what it could achieve. Yeah. A, del a delivery that was less than it could have been achieved if there were more public trust. And also the other issue there, I think, was a failure to sort of try and integrate the, the technical work with uh, the sort of the on the ground normal, how you do contact tracing and, 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 and pandemic management. So for all those reasons, it, it was not a, not a success story at all. But however, the point to make here is, is that, the, that the high point you're talking about, to my mind, was absolutely going after the right thing. There is a huge opportunity in the UK to start to really try to understand how we could use data-driven systems to run government services more effectively and to uh, improve competitive nature and the uh, trustworthiness of private services running on data, in particular, for example, in HR, but also in, in many other markets. I think one of the problems we ran into in that period you're talking about is, is a sort of a, to my mind, the crux of getting this right is building it from the ground up in a trustworthy environment and that means thinking very deeply about how data is managed how it's controlled and what's the basis on which different organizations can access data and how are they held to account by somebody who has equal access to that data and can see exactly what they're doing and hold them up if they're doing something wrong yep that's one view of the world that's my view of the world and many other people i should say in, in, involved in this industry but i think that the government's view at that point was one in which it regarded uh the key to success as being executive action you know what this idea we need to get rid of of sort of um bothersome organizations that stood in the way of government just delivering and i don't think there was a clear understanding that in this space to just deliver you have got to get the basics right you've got to start with thinking about how do we build this in a way that public trust and that we actually know is doing things that is helpful to people and not actually making their lives worse and i think the failure to to really step back and recognize the need to do that and, and the scale of what's involved in doing that has been the reason that everyone's thought, oh, crikey, this is a bit harder than we thought. And, and, the, and it's gone off the boil. And this is a huge mistake for us as a country. Yeah, I think it's it's an interesting one, isn't it? I, I wonder, particularly while you were just talking then, that part of that, I agree that the slower process building trust over time is the most effective way in doing this. But government also has the added problem that the media in particular, as soon as you hear the, the stories around the government using data in certain ways, there's a, it will face a, a whole series of hostile briefing and hostile stories which may characterize or mischaracterize exactly what the government is trying to do with the data. So therefore, you, you will need particularly strong political will and political decision-making that will help oversee that change in order to weather uh, that criticism, which in many cases has been quite easy to fold. So I know it's not exactly analogous, but say if we look at healthcare records in countries like the UK, it, everyone knows it's a good idea for various different reasons. Everyone knows it needs to be done with privacy protections to ensure that people's data isn't being shared willy-nilly where it shouldn't be. But 
it has never really quite worked, partly for that reason, in the sense that they're just that in a in the face of a barrage of criticism and advocacy and concerns, government has never quite had the political will to see it through. And I, you can sort of see that dynamic repeating itself across across Whitehall. That is completely right. And every time someone says, we're going to do this, it was the same with Ofqual, it was the same with um, the health records, it was, we are going to just push this through. And every time government folds, and every time government folds, it's for the same reasons. It's for the reason that the basic underlying uh, governance mechanisms because in all these cases, actually, I mean, the off-call case is a bit different because there was a real problem with what they were actually trying to do in terms of what the public regarded as acceptable. There was a sort of miscalculation of what people would would put up with, as it were. Um, but with the with the other examples, I mean, it, there's there was you know there was nothing harmful was being proposed at all. I mean, there was there was not, no one was going to come to harm from doing these things. But there was an inadequate response to the question, which is how do we actually know for sure that you're definitely not going to do something wrong? Yeah. And it's not, it's not very hard to actually build systems that can give you a very clear and secure answer. It's about legal institutions. It's about explicitly putting barriers, as it were. It's about what democracy is. Democracy involves you don't put all the power in one organization and trust it to do the right thing. You know that that's a pretty stupid way of operating because that organization will inevitably do the wrong thing at some time and everyone will end up howling about it. The way you manage it is you spread power. You have, you have organizations that... Uh, hold others to account, organizations that can say yes or no to particular decisions, organizations that are gatekeepers over access to data. You have used technical mechanisms to ensure that no one can have done anything that, on their own without another organization knowing. And yet we have completely failed to recognize that we need, if we are going to ask the public to accept that these ways of operating are in their interest, we have to build the democratic infrastructure that will, can guarantee this. And it's not a terribly difficult thing to do. But it does take time and it does require some thought and some it requires putting some money into it and you know actually sort of establishing the mechanisms that will work but but the potential upside of doing this correctly are vast and the thought of, of another decade of you know i've been in this area for two decades now and the number of times you just see people run at it really hard saying this time i'm going to smash through the wall and they just step back with their face bleeding and uh, realize that the task is just you just need to get a ladder. <laughs> it's, that, it's that basic, uh, but we, we just never do it. It's a good moment to move on to one group of people who have seemingly not really run into that wall and always seem to have the ladder, and that is the private sector, the larger technology platforms. And is your view the reason they've been so successful, as you said earlier, that they are essentially giving people what they want, hence there is and that is happening in a much slower, more incremental way over time as their business model evolves, that despite a lot of uh, high-level concerns, the public in general is a lot more relaxed about that sharing of data than they potentially have been with governments. Yeah, I think that's right. Although I think it's important to say that the problems underlying the model of, of pri the private sector are very similar to those of underlying government, the basic problem that you know, you, you don't really know, as Francis Halvins pointed out, you know, we don't really know what Facebook's doing with that data. And we don't know what the extent to which, you know, you you, you feel the upside, as it were. You, you, you enjoy the stuff that, you know, enables you to sort of stay in contact with people, get excited about updates and, you know, find out, you know, see interesting and funny things. Everyone enjoys that bit. But no one can really get a handle on, yeah, but how much is this actually, this whole system causing mental health problems in children, you know, driving online, you know, screen addiction, uh, causing uh, social 
discourse to collapse and, and political fragmentation because if it is causing these things right it's it's a real problem and so the 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 underlying issue around how do you know that an organization is acting in a trustworthy way is really the same for the private sector as it is for government it's just that in, you know with the differences in government we haven't really let government do very much for fear that they will you know because and as, as you know, politically the public can protest and stop it happening it has been very successful in doing that and I think actually to the for, to the public's loss overall I think the public has probably lost out significantly as a result of that but it, nonetheless that has been the, the, you know the underlying concern is a real one uh, and then in the private sector we have people you know the, the stuff on offer is so great you know Netflix and Spotify and Amazon, these are pretty, you know, Facebook, these are pretty cool things. I mean, people enjoy them. So you don't, you don't want to get rid of them. But but we have a problem in the sense that uh, we you, you, the terms on which you sign up to these may in fact be very different to what you think they are. And it, they may be causing you um, more significant harm than you imagine. I just want to pick up on a point that you made earlier, Roger. You, you mentioned when we were talking about legitimacy, you were saying this is much more of an issue for the government side of things and the private sector side of things. I do wonder a little bit though in some of, I mean, you mentioned employment and recruitment earlier, but I think there's other examples and case studies where this could be applied. I think you mentioned fraud, but you can also think of pricing and products, credit checks, insurance, these sort of things that are offered to consumers um, where I think legitimacy does play an important role. My concern would be that there's all these mini problems with legitimacy and the use of algorithms in the private sector. It's just that they are not on the scale in a big bang moment, like an exams season. So they sort of go a little bit under the radar. I mean, how do you feel about that? Uh, no, I think that's exactly right. The main difference is what is the degree of the collective interest in how these things operate? Yep. Now, you might say the degree of collective interest in how Amazon operates is the degree to which it undermines uh, the, the, the market efficiency and competitiveness. But beyond that, you know, it's the, the, the actual sort of selection of products is just down to people. We might once have taken a similar view of, you know, whereas at the other end, as it were, the public interest in people being correctly diagnosed and treated under the NHS would seem to be, yeah, there's a significant public interest there. That, and we want to know collectively that that is being done in a way that we're happy with. Uh, if you, you take something like social media, we move very rapidly from a situation in which, well, this is just people talking to people, it's their business, not ours, to this is our business, right? But again, there's, there's uh, you know, it's at collectively our business, in which case these issues about what's legitimate, what isn't, become, become very strongly into play. Very different approaches coming up on the social media one, where we're seeing, I mean, state with one extreme scenario, we're seeing China very clearly stating that you know, social media must operate towards uh, encouraging uh, social consensus and social cohesion. You have um, the US at the other end uh, doing very little. You have the UK, and the, U the difference between UK and Europe is very interesting. UK is very much focused on harm. Can you show that uh, this, uh, the, the way that this media has been distributed has harmed you? Or is there a good case for saying you've been harmed by it? The European Digital Services Act goes a little bit further and actually includes in its definitions of harm, the idea that it's something that is not conducive, I quote the exact words, it's roughly not conducive to a healthy public discourse, okay? <laughs> Which is a very interesting notion. And it's not so, you know, it's not so different say from traditional media regulating, uh, media regulation ideas. So Ofcom's responsibility say on broadcasting to prevent stuff being broadcast that's offensive to most people or, or um, 
those kind of ideas. But I think that idea of what is legitimate to do in media, I think that is going to become increasingly the fore. And I think the amount of work we have to do to get clear in our heads what is you know what is okay and what is not okay in this area uh, is very interesting. I mean, the, I, I have some worries about the European move towards putting these words into law when we when we don't actually really know what we mean by them. But on the other hand, I'm very I, I'm quite encouraged to see you know Ofcom I think is starting to make some headway into trying to think through well how exactly are we going to start dealing with these very difficult difficult issues. So it's interesting, Roger, you, you've moved into the territory of, of how we go about regulating algorithms and the use of algorithms by private sector companies. And it's quite interesting, you, you mentioned Frances Haugen, she's the, for those who are less aware, she's the, the, the whistleblower from Facebook who uh, came to prominence last year with a number of uh, accusations about how Facebook and Instagram and other companies that are now known as Meta operate um, with specific allegations around how the algorithm works and the type of content that it prioritizes. But what was quite interesting, we talked about this a little bit in the past, Roger, is just how exactly do regulators or governments come to terms with this? I mean, when Francis Haugen says we need to regulate algorithms better, does that mean Ofcom or the CMA or uh, the European Commission or the FTC that they go along to Facebook HQ and there's some black box they open up and they see the algorithm working live and suddenly it's all is solved, a little tweak and everything's better. I mean, that doesn't just doesn't really work. So what, what is it we actually mean when we talk about the regulation of algorithms? So I think, I think it's really helpful in this instance to just to go to the extreme case here and understand that there's stuff you can do by asking people to be responsible, putting legal duties on them, threatening to investigate, etc. But it seems to me we only really actually have a grip on what's going on when somebody outside the organisation that is running the algorithm can go and have as much access and as much understanding of what it's doing as the people within the organisation. Indeed, in some cases, more. And that, I think, is a challenge. I think Frances Haugen put it quite well when she said to the Senate, I think it was, um, what you guys need is someone like me inside Facebook, but working for you. Now, that model, I think France tried something a bit like that. I'm not so sure about that particular way of describing it, but the point is correct, that you need to have the same level of insight. And and to my mind, the way to start thinking about this is, is... in terms of data access, because the key to being able to interpret what an algorithm is doing is the ability to understand how if you built an algorithm on that data to do this thing, what would it do? Um, in, In the case of social media, I think that means, for example, understanding the sorts of experimentation that social media organizations have been doing. I think it's perhaps thinking about creating very large synthetic environments. And as I understand it, some social media organizations are doing this, effectively creating wholly artificial mimics of the whole network, if you know what I mean. I mean, it's a colossal undertaking. But or alternatively, uh, you know, in in the way that in in an ethical way, which I think can actually can be done in an ethical way, sort of seeing how changing the algorithm actually affects the distribution of content. But the, the levels of complexity here are very significant because if we take an issue like social media or, or many other areas, you're talking about categorizations of people and categorizations of content that are understood in terms of AI generated um, uh, readings of very, very large complex data sets. 
And you can't simply just turn that into human language and say, oh, well, what we're doing here is that th this thing means uh, pornographic. It's not gonna work like that. And, and so we, we have to have mechanisms where we, we can understand, we can interrogate a system using an AI to identify the sorts of content we're worried about. Um, but that obviously can't be the AI that the system itself is using to identify the content it's worried about, because effectively that is just trusting that they've got it right and they're getting rid of it. Uh, so if you want to know about terrorist content and, and Facebook says, yes, we've got an algorithm that identifies terrorist content and takes it down, how do you know whether they're telling the truth? And you've got two options. You can either spend a lot of time and get lots of people to spend time on Facebook trying to find terrorist content, which is sort of, you know, one way of doing it, but it doesn't sound very reliable. The alternative is you have to have your own way of building an AI that you think is good at generating AI content, uh, identifying terrorist content, and then seeing if you can find stuff that Facebook has missed. It's interesting then. So if that is going to happen, that would imply a focus on the largest platforms. But actually what we were talking about before, where some of the concerns around use of algorithms, whether that's employment and recruitment, a lot of the sort of companies or the recruitment firms or uh, the platforms that we're talking about there, you know, they're not the size of Meta. They're not the size of Alphabet and Apple and others. So how do regulators go about sort of prioritizing here? I mean, we're not going to have digital twins, essentially, for every single company in the economy. It's going to have to be some form of prioritization. Yeah, so there's different sorts of ways of doing this. So, for example, I mean, with the illegal content, obviously, you do need, you know, money invested in creating labeled data sets uh, to do that. And so with terrorist content, you know, in the UK, uh, a company did produce a, an algorithm, an independently produced algorithm for terrorist content using, I think, uh, home office data. Um, child sexual exploitation, there are very good shared resources that are being built. And these are the kind of mechanisms we need where organizations and there's been a very high commitment to, to dealing with this and we have seen organizations putting into a sort of common uh shared resource um they're creating a database of images that can be used both to check images against the database and also to generate ways of identifying uh child sex exploitation images so there's those kinds of mechanisms but then you get into areas where you start talking about um uh issues around say harm in terms of misinformation on vaccines. I, I'm not sure quite how we're gonna go about trying to do this, if you know I mean. We, we could try and create a shared resource, but it moves very, very quickly, this in terms of people coming up with new ways of expressing things. Um, so you can have, uh, you can have you know, um, uh, groups of people who effectively act as a, a bit like in you know, television monitoring, where you take sort of feed from a large number of people and, and you try and, try and monitor what's going on. I think it will be an exercise that does require sharing, as it were, of um, edge cases is one way of doing it. So you can imagine a scenario in which, say, Facebook and Google both have efforts to identify uh, what they regard as being vaccine misinformation, which they wish to then perhaps um, they might take the view that it's not illegal to say you think vaccines are poisonous, but you might say we don't want our algorithm to be promoting this very strongly across the network because that might cause people to change their behavior and consequently die. Um, but what might be helpful scenario in that situation would be for say organizations that are both trying to do this to compare as it were what they're picking up and what they're not picking up uh, and those sorts of mechanisms might come into play. I, I suppose what I'm trying to give you a sense of here is, is that we've got a lot of work to try and identify the most effective mechanisms for doing it but the second thing to say is underlying all of this there is a degree to which there is um, 
organizations can contest each other's interpretation of the data they're operating with. And we've talked a lot about social media, which has some very particular issues about it. I mean, it's worth saying every, every market has its own different issues. They, 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 everything is very context dependent here. The right mechanisms will be different for different markets. So if you take, for example, healthcare, um, in healthcare, you're dealing with a situation where you've got much more standardized sets of data and where, as it were, the data are often fundamentally sort of from publicly funded organizations or under, under some degree of public control. And where the creation a bit, uh, and we did a bit of this in the UK with, with lung disease, but there's, I mean, there's massive scope to expand this. Uh, the creation of data sets that can be used both to generate algorithms, but also where these, these data stores might be operated on the basis that there is some obligation on somebody who used this to feed back into the data store their interpretations of the data so that that can itself be regulated and understood and, and, and checked and, and, and contested. Now, it needs to be done in a way that recognizes the economic value of, of people's innovation, their investment, but it, all, but it does need to be done in a way that can provide the public with assurance and it needs to be done in a way that allows very rapid development and innovation. One of the problems we've got at the moment, say in healthcare, I think, is we, are, we don't have mechanisms that can operate with sufficient speed to identify, um, you, you, want, you want to create an environment in which people can build on each other, other's work, uh, create ever better mechanisms for categorizing illness or identifying appropriate treatments. And, and an environment in which the public can trust that when that's done, it, it really works, you know, that they have got it right. And so the environment we're trying to create in healthcare would be very different to the environment we're trying to create in social media. Again, education would be a different environment. Uh, HR, I, I, again, a completely different sort of environment in which I think one of the main issues in HR is the degree to which people are being graded by very untransparent mechanisms of assessment and yet have no recourse to the information that's generated out of that. And that seems to me, a, you know, a, a different sort of problem, but one that is absolutely as important to fix and which would open up competition and innovation in that area uh, very effectively. Well, thanks, Roger. The final question I had for you relates to the fact that we have a, we have a new Secretary of State starting this week in the UK. Uh, in their in-tray is going to be the nascent UK AI strategy uh, and what should, what should the government do there? And one of the key questions goes back to what you've just said do you follow the approach of the european union which has been to apply a series of cross-cutting rules to all forms of algorithmic development ai applications in the economy have a single set of standards and then for those high risk applications they have a, a more exacting uh, series of measures they have to conform to but ultimately it's sector blind it isn't really context uh, dependent in the way that you've just talked about. The alternative is what you've talked about, which is having separate regimes for healthcare, separate regimes for education, perhaps financial services and others. So to the new Secretary of State, as they start to sort of weigh up how to take this uh, policy forward, what would your advice be? Okay, so yes, firstly, do not go down the European route. Do not pass an AI Act. Um, I, we, I, I personally think trying to create a, a new horizontal level of regulation on top of everything else, and particularly in areas where we don't really fully understand the best ways of dealing with some of these issues is a mistake. Um, I think the, the strategy we had before, which was that you have an independent body that oversees regulators, is responsible for ensuring they have the tools they need to do the job, and there's a lot of work to do there. 
and which identifies gaps in regulation is a better strategy. Um, the risk with our strategy at the moment is, is primarily that we just haven't expressed it. The reason why the world is focused on the EU Act is because they've written it down and they've published something. I think we are still way behind the, the, the curve in terms of actually getting our act together in terms of saying very clearly what it is we are doing. That would be the first point. The second point I would make is it's not just a, the, 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 do not think about AI regulation yeah, and data regulation separately. These two things need, seem to be need to be seen together. And the thing you're really looking for, the thing you'll be to really focus on is the sweet spot where government can create uh, data governance mechanisms that will create the sort of contestable market situation I've just been describing. Now, we, we kind of know what's required here. You've got to build it from the ground up. So you've got to build it in terms of data being fundamentally linked to individuals and having personal data stores. You then have to have a data governance level, uh, you know, uh, independent organizations that can determine how data is accessed and on what terms. You then want to have market participants who can, uh, or, and researchers who can then access data under very clearly controlled mechanisms to identify new opportunities to benefit people and, 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 and new services. You need to separate the application layer from the data layer. It's these ideas that have been around for 20 years. And you know, apart from a few cases, I think Belgium's done a bit, we did, we've not seen any government really get to grips with this and start to think radically about how we create a fair, democratic, competitive data economy. That is the opportunity for the UK. We have, as you said, been talking about it for quite a long time. We still have not really made any significant progress towards implementing it. Well, thanks, Roger. That was a fascinating uh, journey through the application of algorithms, both in government, the private sector, but also how regulators need to start thinking about approaching the issue and, frankly, how the UK but other jurisdictions need to upgrade and their approach and have a much more sophisticated regulatory regime to scrutinise how algorithms are being used across the economy in far more detail. So thank you once again, and many thanks to listeners. Just a flag that the next podcast will be in two weeks' time. And during that podcast, we're going to review the state of play of privacy regulation in the US, something which Roger and I have touched on just now, but also what a Liz Trust government means for UK tech policy. Look forward to speaking then. Bye-bye.